Do you spend hours in your head thinking about something that happened, could have happened, or might happen? Do you ask others what to do so you don't make a mistake? Welcome to the Playing It Safe podcast. I am Dr. Z, your host. I am a clinical psychologist, an author, and a person that is super passionate about sharing with you science-based skills to overcome any type of fear-based struggles. Who doesn't experience fear? Who doesn't play it safe? In this show, we will discuss how fear-based reactions happen in day-to-day life, how playing it safe behaviors look like, sound like, and feel like, how you can put into action solid tips from behavioral science to get unstuck from worries, fears, obsessions, and anxieties, and how you can start doing what works, what matters, and what you care about. Behavioral science doesn't have to be boring. Thanks for listening, and let's get started. When was the last time that you had an aha moment in which you clearly saw your next steps? Do you remember how it is to be in the midst of a difficult situation and then have clarity of what you need to do? Hi guys, this is Dr. Z. For those of you who are listening to the podcast for the first time, thank you so much for listening and I hope you find this episode helpful. If you pay attention to your experiences, you may notice those aha moments in which your choices are clear. Moments in which you can clearly see what you are longing or the changes you need to make in your life. Without that awareness, it's easy to play it safe. It's easy to live automatically and continue to respond to all those anxieties, fears and worries in the same way you have been doing it for years. One way to build that awareness is to the practice of mindfulness. In today's episode, I share with you a conversation I had with Dr. Seth Gillihan. Seth and I discuss how you can nourish your mindfulness practice. In a world that moves so fast, and there are hundreds of mindfulness apps, books on mindfulness, and mindfulness teachers, believe it or not, it's easy to develop misconceptions about the practice of mindfulness or thinking of mindfulness as a quick fix. But how can you really cultivate your mindfulness practice in your day-to-day life? So Seth and I discussed those misconceptions and in particular, we dive into different ways for you to nourish and cultivate your mindfulness practice in your day-to-day life. In this conversation, you will hear tips on how to approach mindfulness with a beginner's mind, the intersection of Christianity and mindfulness, how to use movement as a way to practice mindfulness, how to bring yourself back to the present when your mind is wandering the intersection of cognitive behavior therapy and mindfulness, and how to coach yourself to recognize thoughts as thoughts versus getting consumed with them. I also want to remind you that on Wednesday, August 2nd at 9 a.m. Pacific time, I am giving a workshop on how to navigate big fear-based emotions in the moment. Let's face it. Life gives you plenty of reasons to get anxious, scared, fearful, or worried. And 
while it's natural to feel all those emotions, sometimes it can feel like your anxious feelings are taking over. And it's uncomfortable to feel that your mind is spinning out of control and dictating quickly your actions. In this workshop, you will learn core skills to take charge of those anxious feelings and start living the life you want. You will learn how to coach yourself when feeling any of those fear-based emotions, bring yourself back to the present, and how to set a daily practice to make room for those anxious feelings. I hope you can join me, and to register, you need to go to the website courses.thisisdrz.com that is www.courses.thisisdrz.com You can also go to my website thisisdrz.com and select the option workshops from the menu and register there. Hope you enjoy my conversation with Seth and I hope I will see you on the webinar on August 2nd and I wish you a great week. Bye-bye. How do you navigate through that? And I'm thinking more about people who are listening to us who maybe are skeptical on the edge of looking at the benefits of mindfulness. Yeah, yeah. You know, one thing that just, I was reminded of, I remember sitting at this table probably in 2008 and that we were sitting, I was, it was a group of grad students having lunch with someone very well known in the mindfulness world as a psychologist. And my memory is this person said, you know, kind of said, you know, they can go around and, and talk about like, you know, do you have a mindfulness practice or a meditation practice? And that was one of the things that really creeped me out. It had this feeling of like, we have to show like, yes, I, I practice meditation. I do 15 minutes a morning. Like it, it felt very performative mm-hmm. in a way that seemed like, wait, is this what mindfulness is about? So, but what really, what really pulled me in, I think was, it's another, another chapter from my life. I was, I was working around the same time when I, when I first, when I first kind of opened my mind or my heart to, <clears throat> to mindfulness practice, I was, I was working so hard in this faculty position, trying to get grants, write papers, keep up with everything. Mm. So that meant, you know, working every night, every weekend. If I took off, you know, like a, a day during a weekend, I'd feel bad about it. This kind of junior faculty syndrome. <laughs> so one night I was sitting there working on a grant and a dear friend of mine, Aria Campbell Dinesh, sent me a song. It happened to be a song by Mumford and Sons mm. from their first album, you know, their enormously popular debut album. And so, you know, I was like, okay, here's a song. I wasn't feeling anything in particular at the time when I listened to it, when I, when I before I listened to it, but when I put it on, the words, it was uh, Awake My Soul. That was the name mm-hmm. of the, the song. You can sort of imagine the the, wow. the message. And it just, it hit me so hard because I had this feeling like, like I wasn't awake, like I wasn't alive. Mm-hmm. Like there was a deeper part of me that had, I, I didn't have words for this at the time. I just felt grief and I was sobbing. I was like, like with like from my gut, you know, just crying and crying and had this deep sense of longing of that. Yes, there's something here that I've been neglecting or I've, I've, I turned away from, you know, probably when I left the religion I was brought up with, I also left behind any, 
any openness to spirituality or by which I just mean to the, the deepest aspects of our experience, not something beyond this life, but something deeply in this life. Mm-hmm. So, so that I think was, there were these, wow. you know, I, I described this in, in my book, this kind of call, you know, this call, that I kept being, being drawn to something more, this kind of this beckoning. And I think that was, that was a big part of what opened me up to that, that idea that like, what I'm ignoring something here. Mm-hmm. And it, there's something, there's, there's an aspect of experience that's beyond mind and beyond body. And it doesn't have to be your conservative Christian upbringing. Mm-hmm. Like that was a particular expression. That was someone's best attempt at, at connecting with the divine. And it doesn't have to be like that at all. So then just having some experiences of my own, I think in meditation and mindfulness and realizing like, you know, reading this, this book that I mentioned and other books and realizing like, wow, like I have been, it feels like sleepwalking through my life mm-hmm. and that kind of waking up experience. I mean, you know, Sam Harris has a, a well-known book, best-selling book on mindfulness called waking up. Yeah, That was my experience. It's like, I've been, I've been half asleep and I could have kept sleepwalking, but now I'm awake and I see my family and I see the things I've taken for granted. And I see all the, you know, the 99% of my life that I've been walking past blindly because I've been focused narrowly on the 1% that I imagine is not exactly the way I want it to be. And that was, yeah, that was really, that was really the turning point for me. Just realizing that there was a lot that I was missing. Wow. Seth, what a sweet, sweet memory, what a sweet experience. And it makes me think how many times in life we have these micro moments in which we are really, really open to what is in front of us. In some way, we realize the pain that we're going through, how much we're missing in life. But it's incredible because it's not by thinking and thinking, right? No. It has nothing to do with that, right? Just really, it's such a sweet memory as you describe. Um, and it reminds me also, when I was learning ACT, actually, I was an skeptical of ACT because <laughs> like, I didn't buy into this whole thing of mindfulness or watching your mind. Um, and it was only my third or fourth workshop when, when I... In some way, I remember telling myself, okay, Patricia, just see what happens without trying to understand it with your head. Yeah. I have to coach myself in that way to be able to, to just sit more with the experience and the pain that I was going through. Um, hundreds of times, we try to understand everything by thinking and reasoning and logic. Yeah. But there are other experiences that really hit us. And just suddenly we feel a, a different sense of what we're missing, what we're longing, what we need to do differently. Right. Uh, I just want to add too, because you asked about other people's, you know, who, other people who may be skeptical or, or hesitant. Mm-hmm. If we can just, just let go of as many concepts as possible about like, well, this is what mindfulness is. And instead just, you know, if you, if you think about what's most meaningful to you, are there moments in your life when you felt most connected to your experience, mm-hmm. or I used to have these moments where I'd feel like I wouldn't change a single thing about this moment, not because it was necessarily the best ever, mm-hmm. but just because there was a kind of acceptance and contentment in that moment. So I would allow, like, you know, drop the label if it if it helps. Don't call it mindfulness. But there's this experience of being so close to your life, so close to what's happening, 
that's it's always available mm-hmm. and if we think if we can drop drop our our preconceived ideas and just let our life be what it is to me that's really what what mindful presence is about mm-hmm. i think you're tapping into the essence of mindfulness in our life and one way of building this awareness or nurturing that muscle is by having a formal practice of meditation sitting in a cushion 15 10 minutes a day or one hour if you want or going to a silence retreat but there is also um, ways of practicing mindfulness throughout your day from the moment i open my eyes as i get ready to start my day as i um, prepare my breakfast as i have this conversation what would be your tips for people to to tap into these moments of awareness and presence and being alive while they're moving through their day yeah you know trap into this busyness of the day i know yeah i think there are different moments where we can i mean you can do this at any point but i think it helps to have specific times when you practice to do it so it's easier to remember i think waking up is a great time to practice it you know even before you put your feet on the floor just to instead of rushing you know just jumping into the day kind of thinking ahead what's the next thing i have to get there i have to have to get moving and we can end up starting the day from a place of disconnection from ourselves and from what's actually happening. So, you know, before we, before we even set up, we can just, you know, take, take a couple of breaths and check in with ourselves, kind of join body and mind before we start moving our bodies. And speaking of moving our bodies, I had this experience this morning, this reminder I went for a walk with a friend. He was walking to the train station. So I walked with him to the train station and then I walked home. And on the way home, you know, it was raining and I was looking forward to, you know, getting out of the rain, getting home. And I found myself walking quickly and not only walking quickly, but it had this feeling that I was, I was trying to be ahead of where I was. And it felt like there was this shadow me that was like half a step in front of me that I kept trying to catch. And then I realized, like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna catch up to where I'm not. I'm only ever gonna be where I am. <laughs> and so that that simple shift mm. brought me back to like, you're right here, Seth. You're right here. Like, the the foot that's stepping right now, that's the only, that's the only foot that's moving. And now the other one is moving. And I didn't necessarily slow down, but I wasn't trying to go faster than I was going. Mm-hmm. So those, you know, if we can maybe pick a time in our day when we just allow things to take as long as they take, allow ourselves to be in the moment and, and with just a moment's awareness, again, I just, I keep, I keep coming back to this idea of we're coming home to ourselves just, just come home to yourself. You're right here. You're only, you're only in the present, your body's in the present your spirit's in the present, your thoughts are happening in the present. So just re- rejoin mind and body. Um, one other one that I like is making dinner because I make dinner every evening and just being in that experience, you know, with the, if I'm chopping vegetables, if I'm filling water, I'm continually amazed at what it does. You know, if my mind maybe is a little bit like I'm feeling a little bit amped up from the day or, or maybe feeling pressed for time. Mm-hmm. Just to just to be in the experience, like not to, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna turn this into a vegetable chopping meditation. Like, you know, it's nothing precious like that. It's just 
all right, you're just, you're chopping vegetables and feeling, you know, the rocking of the knife or feeling what water actually feels like when you're, you know, washing something. It just, it just changes things in a way that's, I think, hard to describe, but I invite people to try it out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Those are beautiful suggestions. I love them. Um, sometimes in these mundane activities, there is so much um, richness of the experience, right? Yeah. I was smiling as you were talking about cooking because I have this very interesting relationship with cooking. Um, I don't see myself as a good cook and it's quite stressful for me. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) But this weekend I was painting and and I find it so um, revitalizing and I Mm. was present when moving my arm and looking at the colors and looking at the paint. And then the thought that popped in my mind was painting is not as stressful as cooking. And I think I think the idea here is to find those moments to be present, even though the mind may take us away or the mind may judge the activity, right? Like for me, if I'm cooking, my mind will be very, very judgmental about what am I doing? And mm-hmm. I will quickly start anticipating how bad it's going to taste. <laughs> Uh, so, <laughs> so along those lines, for people listening to us, if they are practicing these tips as they are cooking or doing the dishes or they are getting ready to drive or they are waking up, but their mind is going into judgmental mode. They're judging what they are doing or the mind is quickly going into this to- mental to-do list about all the things they have to do. What would you encourage them to try so they can bring themselves back to the present? Well, a couple things. I think, you know, one is just coming back to the present, like just being close enough to our experience that it, that, that some of those thoughts drop away. I remember my, my tennis coach in high school didn't frame it as mindfulness, Mm. but I, I had a lot of nerves playing uh and it would really get in my head and it would you know throw off my game and he told me that that you know anxiety is a failure to focus mm-hmm. and he said if you know if i'm just focusing on this shot then i don't have the attention to be thinking like okay oh, if i make this shot then i'm set up for this one and then i'm up a break point and if i if i break him and hold then i win the you know like all this mental stuff so so just coming back come back come back it's so um like really connected with exactly this moment, some of those things drop away. But for this, I think is where the is one of the places where CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, and mindfulness intersect. Because mm-hmm. with the you know those judgments, like with your cooking, yeah, what occurs to me is you know those are those are predictions about the future. You know mm-hmm. about what's going to happen, how the dish is going to turn out, and they might be true, they might not be, but they're not they're not real. You know they're not they're not, there's no substance to them. They're just a, you know, prediction that the mind is making, but what we call unless you try my food. (laughs) (laughs) There may be good evidence for them, (laughs) but you know, I'll bring a beginner's mind to the table and we'll see, see what it's like this time. I mean, it's a good point. We wouldn't want to, you know, BS ourselves and say like, no, it's going to be amazing. You know, it's going to be the best thing I've ever tasted, but maybe to have some some openness to it, you know, to, to to hold those thoughts a little more lightly to recognize like, all right, that's, it's fortune telling, you know, it's the mind is looking into the future and saying like, this is how it's going to go. And 
and it might be true, but it's a, it's just a fantasy at this point. And so just recognizing that as a thought, as you know, that can be so, that can just transform our relationship with that mental event. Like, oh, it's not that I'm like, I'm reading something true about the world. Like, like there's like this event has already happened and somebody's reporting on it. It's a guess that the mind is making about the future. And when I recognize like, oh, that's a thought, that's a story about how things might turn out. Mm -hmm. Then I'm not necessarily as attached to that thought. And then I can examine it. Like, is there evidence for it? Yes. It turns out there's a lot of evidence in this case that things might go badly, but you know, maybe you're trying out some new things or you're, you're trying something that you're more comfortable with or someone's working with you on the recipe. I don't know, but, Mm -hmm. uh, but, but whatever, you know, often what's, what's, what's happening is we're having those types of predictions about things that, you know, actually we're, we're good at, or there's no strong evidence that things are going to go badly. So I think mindfulness can help us to be aware of those thoughts. And then we can use more of the cognitive technique to, well, let's take a look at this. You know, is it, is it the only way things could go or is there a more realistic alternative? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that mindfulness has bring to me among many things has been um, non-attachment to how things supposed to be, right? Because oh, goodness, like, yeah. right, cooking, for example, of course I want the food to taste delicious. I want it to taste yummy. And sometimes that happens, maybe 30% of the time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But I think that when my mind is going into this fortune telling, this this disaster forecaster, I just check with myself, what am I really pursuing here? Is it the process Mm. or how things supposed to be the goal, right? Yeah. Because we don't know. I don't know how the dish is going to taste. But I... I, I am cooking because I am trying to be more invested in the process of. So mm. I think I didn't know that until I started practicing mindfulness that helped me to check what am I really attached? What am I really chasing here? Yeah. Uh, and I'm curious, how is for you that in terms of non-attachment to the ideas of who we are, uh-huh. not attachment to how things are supposed to be? Right. Uh, how do you see that connection with mindfulness practices? Oh, yeah, well, it's it's so key. And that's I mean that's a big area for me that, that you know I'm still growing in because yeah, it's so easy for me to get attached to how I I, I want things to go, how I expect them to go, attachment to my routines, my schedules. That's not, you know, this is how things are supposed to go today. Um like our uh second grader uh, I was homesick today, which was, you know, not supposed to happen. Yeah, thank you. She's she's okay. It was sort of borderline, like, well, he could stay home, but maybe he could go see how things are. Um, but, you know, it takes, uh, it's the same thing happened on Tuesday, so two days ago. Um, and then yesterday, she was in school. Then today, I was kind of like, oh, like, you know, it's, I work from home. So it's, uh, it can be challenging to have someone, a kid, you know, to, sort of be be, uh, responsible for, you know, while trying to get work done. Um, So Tuesday was a real challenge. Today was a bit better. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, these things, they take practice and it's easy to, so easy for, easy for me to be attached to even, even with things like a, like a, like a, a game, 
that I'm watching, like a baseball game. You know, mm-hmm. I have this idea of like, oh, they've got, you know, my team has you know, bases loaded, no outs, you know, they're down one run. This is going to be great. And then next thing I know, like somebody strikes out and then there's a double play and they're still down one run and innings over. I'm like, oh, like it wasn't supposed to go that way. But <laughs> but it, I'm learning to allow things to unfold. Like the way they're quote unquote supposed to go is just mm-hmm. the way they go because that's what happened. Mm-hmm. You know, or I think of it like the like the weather. You know, the weather doesn't care about our forecasts. That's right. It just the weather is just the weather. So it's it's like that with life too. Only I guess maybe even less predictable than the weather. But it's hard sometimes, right? I think so hard. Like you, that's something I have to pay attention to almost every single day, right? What am I really getting attached to? And on that sense. Um, you have been blending mindfulness and cognitive behavior skills for hundreds of years, not hundreds of years, for a couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're not too old. <laughs> for, for many, many, many years, mm-hmm. right? Um, how do you see that intersection? If we can unpack this a little bit, um, if a person is dealing with rumination, with worry, with what if thoughts, what can they do in those moments? Yeah. Well, you know, worry is an interesting one because. The, the straight, the, the cognitive techniques that we use with other things aren't necessarily helpful because, you know, you can get in with the worry and, and ask about like, okay, so you, you normally do like, what's the thought? Well, like, you know, what if I, what if I get sick before my talk tomorrow? Mm-hmm. Evidence for, talk about the evidence supporting that thought. Is there any evidence against it? Oh yeah. Like I'm ignoring this other part. All right. So a more realistic alternative is like, you know, I probably won't get sick and even if I do, you know, they can push back, you know, push it back and reschedule. But what if I'm sick, right? The worry just comes back with that. Mm -hmm. What if, because we don't know. And we can just feed into that worry cycle. If we really get in there and start taking these thoughts seriously and trying to talk ourselves out of them. So if it is something like, like maybe if a person is depressed, I think Mm -hmm. that's, that's an area where thoughts can be super helpful. Like if someone is thinking like, I shouldn't even go to this party because, you know, I'm not going to have any fun and and nobody's going to talk to me. Well, I mean, that's a specific prediction about a, you know, a, a maybe it's an event that the person would actually enjoy and mm-hmm. would find some connection and could actually give them a little mood boost and could be part of helping to relieve their depression if they do those types of things consistently. So there, if it's not, you know, the constant worries, those more focal types mm-hmm. of things it can be helpful really to get into those thoughts. With worry, it's more about our relationship to the worry and maybe questioning these implicit beliefs we have about, like, I should worry. It's a good thing to worry. It's dangerous not to worry. I'm going to get blindsided or or I'm going to allow bad things to happen. If I'm not constantly worrying about keeping the plane up, then the plane is going to be more likely to crash, which we know consciously doesn't make sense. But on a gut level, Mm -hmm. we might worry, worry, worry to kind of keep the plane up. I'm going to worry about my sports team to make sure they win. <laughs> so um, this is on my mind a lot these days as, as we're recording this, you know, the world cup is, is going on and oh, it's happening. <laughs> there's so much, you know, superstition around sports. So with, so with mindfulness, I think, you know, noticing when we're caught up in worry is really helpful. Like, Oh, there goes my mind again. I'm worrying. 
And rather than fighting the thoughts like, no, I'm not going to get sick, or let me, let me think of all the reasons why things are going to go well, again, that can just contribute to more of that mental activity, that overactive mm-hmm. mental process. So if we can, can recognize that we don't have to get wrapped up in those thoughts, we can just sort of let them, let them be there and you know, get more involved in things that we actually uh, care about, like where we want to invest our energy and our attention. And then it can be really helpful to do the opposite of worrying, which is to open to like, yeah, maybe I will get sick. Maybe, you know, I won't be able to go on my trip. Instead of fighting those thoughts and trying to resist them, saying, yeah, that might happen. And starting to practice recognizing that ultimately our well-being isn't tied to things going the way that we want them to, that we can find peace and contentment and equanimity, even when we get sick, when we're disappointed, when we have traumatic experiences, not that we don't care about those things or that we're indifferent to them, that they don't affect us. But again, I think when we're, when we're connected to that deeper part of ourselves, Mm -hmm. there's an aspect within us that's not touched by those, those measures of loss and gain and good and bad. And can just, you know, witness all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I don't, I don't know your experience with this, Patricia, but I think it's a, I think it's a challenging point for a lot of people because it has this very strong echo of the type of thing you would hear, like everything happens for a reason, or um, this sort of Panglossian idea of like, well, you know, whatever happens is the best of all possible worlds. And that's not what I'm talking about. You know, it's not a kind of easy platitude, but it's more like, yeah, what's happening is really, really hard. And there's a part of you that can, can still be okay, even when things are undeniably not okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As you're talking, I'm nodding my head and I'm thinking about all the aspects of mindfulness. And it's this this ability to step back and becoming in some way the observer of all mm-hmm. your experience. Uh-huh. Now we talk about the self as a perspective, which is a little bit what you're describing. And, and I agree. I think it's really, it's very counterintuitive many times when you're trying to learn and cultivate that. Yeah. But I think there is something extremely powerful and transcendental in some way when you practice mindfulness that even even in the moments of feeling upset and disappointed and hurt, you are watching that you're going through that. Not that you're dissociating, but you're watching the art, you're having those experiences, but somehow they don't define you. Yes. Right now, now this sounds a little bit abstract and perhaps too much for people listening to us. I didn't know that until I started practicing mindfulness in different ways, right? Um so I think that's what you're trapping a little bit and perhaps that's what you call coming back home. Yeah, you know, I remember I, I had a, an experience like this this morning, mm. this kind of like during, during a guided meditation. And it reminded me of an exactly parallel experience when I was in high school. And I was with my brother and we were, we were walking in the woods and it was cold and I didn't have a jacket. And he talked about, he said something about like, like, see what it's like to like, just let yourself be cold. 
like to not to not fight it mm. I was like oh that's interesting so like instead of like you know kind of like like tensing my body and hiking my shoulders up I was like all right I'm just gonna feel what it's like to be cold it's like wow like it was still cold but I wasn't suffering mm-hmm. and that was the experience I had in meditation this morning when the the guide said you know allow like like rather than calling your experience good or bad <clears throat> just notice it all as experience yeah. and I had a, a hoodie there that I was about to put on because I was a little chilly. And I was like, mm-hmm. well, let me just feel being chilly. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, like it's it's actually just kind of interesting. And it didn't feel bad. It was just like, oh, like it's a certain feeling in the body. And so it's, I just, I think it's so interesting because my brother, I don't think even framed it to himself as like, this is a practice in mindfulness. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's commonly used in mindfulness. But we don't have to call it that or or anything. It's just like, oh, yeah. Just stop fighting your experience and be in it. And yeah, it's a little, it's a little easier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's incredible, right? I'm I'm thinking about the difference between pain and suffering. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I'm cold, that's already painful. But if I, yep. if I start judging this experience, I shouldn't be feeling this way. What's happening with the weather? I hate this. That is going to add that suffering, right? Because then I'm trapped on my mind. Yes. I love what you're saying that. We don't have to have a label, but just openness to what is in front of us. And mm. curiosity, curiosity to see what could it be, right? Yes. Um, it said, if it's okay, I, I am looking to your recent book. And there is this chapter that really speaks to my heart. It's called Connect mm. With Yourself. Mm-hmm. And, oh, um, yeah. What's the story behind it? If you feel comfortable sharing that. Of course, I mean it's in the book, so <laughs> the cat's out of the bag. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I got sick. I got sick. Uh, gosh, now probably six, maybe even seven years ago. <clears throat> and um, you know, speaking of of our idea of how things should go, that mm. was definitely not my idea of how my life should go. I'd always been healthy, strong, athletic um active energetic and suddenly i had almost no energy no stamina couldn't really exercise beyond walking um and even then not very far sleep was terrible um and many this is this this long list of fairly non-specific symptoms i felt like i didn't know myself anymore you know here i was early 40s and i was like who is this guy you know, like I would see myself and be like, you know, at one point I lost 25 pounds and, you know, I was just like, just felt weak. I felt like I was dying. I was like, I don't, I don't feel like I know myself. I feel like I'd lost myself. Not just like, I feel sick, but like there was something like on a, on a deeper level, I had lost, you know, that sense of just who you are. I think we take it mm-hmm. for granted. We have a sense of, I am like, I am me. And I didn't recognize this person that I'd become. And so that was, you know, I, I described this, I described this incident in the chapter where I was at the beach with my family and, you know, looking out at the, at the horizon where the, the water met the sky and, you know, just feeling miserable. I was just, you know, really uh, exhausted and um, depressed I went into a major depression, but 
I, it's, 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 I mean, it was embarrassing a little bit when I, when I wrote it, but I think it's funny. It's a little embarrassing to say it now, but, but I'd seen the movie, Disney movie Moana. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I loved that movie. Like I, I, I tend to like, you know, the Disney, uh, you know, uh, cartoon movies. And that's, I think probably my favorite more than Lion King. Um, (laughs) Oh boy. (laughs) I know. Yeah. I mean, mean, that's saying something. Um, But, but, you know, there's the scene where, uh, where Moana is singing. I don't think it gives anything away, but she's singing toward the end of the movie about how, like, this is not who you are. You know who you are. And that line came to me. I was like, yeah, this is not, this isn't you. Like, yes, you're, you're going through some unspecified illness and you're depressed, but that doesn't, there's, there's a you that's not defined by those things. And so I, in that moment, I just felt like, like it changed everything. That sense of like, oh, like I know, I know who I am. It's not this, like, this is not the sum definition of me. And you know, I've always loved being in the water. And so I, you know, I, I went out into the water and was, and started swimming and the, and the water was, it was in the Atlantic. It was fairly cold and I just felt so alive again, felt connected to myself. So I thought of it in a way of kind of like kind of a baptism mm-hmm. speaking of my, my mm-hmm. religious roots, but it felt like a, like a reawakening, like a reconnecting with myself. And it's not like I got out of the water and I was like, I mean, I did feel amazing when I got out. Um, I felt strong, but uh, it's not like I was cured mentally or physically or, or well, but, but maybe on a spiritual level, there was something that had shifted. And I think that really was an important kind of chapter in my, you know, beginning to recover. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I am I'm smiling softly as you were talking because I think often we don't realize that there's a part of us that that longs, I don't know if it's long, but I think there is a part of us that in some ways is, it's transcendental and needs to be nourished and cultivated. And and it doesn't have to be necessarily through religion. I think it's a part of us that, that craves to have meaning and a deeper sense of connection not only with the people we love, but with ourselves. Um, and sometimes it's hard to tap to that because of all the noise that comes in our head. Mm-hmm. But it look, it sounds like in that moment, you did have one of those moments of connecting with yourself in a very, very deeper level. Yes. You know, it's interesting. I don't know, maybe a year or two before that incident, I had been speaking with uh, people who had, had studied near-death experiences. And I had this this very strong sense that there was that there was a presence in the universe that wanted to be known, mm-hmm. and that that it seemed like that was what these experiences were tapping into. But what I what I came away, or I don't know if came away from is quite the right expression, but but what I discovered through you know these experiences I was describing just now is also, or or maybe instead that there is a a part of ourselves that really wants to be known. There's a, with what I experience now or, or interpret now as, as like a part of the divine that we each carry within us that wants to, wants to know us and wants to be known. It wants to be in connection mm-hmm. with us. And that, that's really 
that's really just kind of blowing my mind. That feeling of like when I, when I felt alone and I've, I've, you know, even, even prayed in a kind of general sense to, you know, the, the powers that be I've, I, because of my upbringing, I think I always had the experience that that force was out there, mm-hmm. you know, and like, oh, I felt like that's, you know, so far away. Why are you far from me? You know, be close to me. But I realized like that, whatever that, that power or that presence is that I crave, it's, I mean, it's in a way it's like closer than my own body. Like it's, it's so, it's like, it feels like another, just like another layer of, of who I am. I feel like we've, (laughs) I feel like we've gone, speaking of transcendental, I think we've transcended by a bit the uh, bounds of psychology, but, but it feels like this is, you know, a big part of human experience that I think is often, I found is, you know, missing in kind of mainstream psychology. And I think people are, I, I would I would use the word you use. I think we're longing for something that's that's deeper and that encompasses our full experience. I I am nodding my head because I do think that unfortunately, and especially in the area of evidence-based practices, somehow we have think of human beings as the way that we think, the way that we feel, the way that we sense, but we have forgotten what these other large area of our life, right? That yeah, it's there, exists within us. And sometimes it's not about that intervention. It's about the openness to life and to acknowledge this different sense of, of experiencing ourselves. So uh, I hope that with this conversation, people listening to us can hear that, yes, we can practice evidence-based <laughs> interventions, cognitive behavior therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy. And we can also acknowledge these multiple layers that we have as human beings. Yeah, yeah. Because I feel like we end up becoming non-evidence-based if we're ignoring all the evidence that people have for, not for God, you know, that I'm not trying to argue the empirical case for God, but but just as a phenomenological experience, it's a part of, I mean, it's something that William James, you know, the experimental father of psychology, you know, studied and wrote about extensively in like varieties of religious experience. And I think we've gotten squeamish about it because we have physics envy. We want to, you know, appear to be so objective and and scientific, but in a way that I think becomes, unfortunately, kind of less human. We're running out of time. So I just want to say once again, thank you so much for sharing all your wisdom, for your openness, and and for the courage you have to to talk about these things in in this public format. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. Desde el fondo del corazón. Well, thank you, Patricia. I always appreciate speaking with you. Thank you for your, your warmth and your enthusiasm and your humanity. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, I will very much appreciate it if you will subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. And if you're feeling extra generous, I welcome a review on Apple Podcasts. Show notes of this episode are in the website playingwithsafe.zone. Make sure to subscribe to my newsletter so you can receive more tips to stop all types of unworkable playing it safe actions. See you soon!